The easiest way to secure and accelerate your website is with Encapsula, protecting over 4 million sites from individual bloggers to the Fortune 50. Visit Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers and use promo code DATANAUTS to get a 30-day free trial. This week's Datanauts podcast is sponsored in part by Interop ITX, the only independent conference for technology leaders. Get a year's worth of objective IT education in one week. Visit interopitx.com and use promo code PACKETPUSHERS for a 20% discount. Scripting and automation are the most normal things in the world, depending on what part of the IT stack you work with. If you're in the networking part of the stack, your automation rocket might be having trouble leaving the launching pad. And if you're a networker, you know exactly why this is. And if you're not, it might seem like a bunch of crusty network engineers are crying about spanning tree and just can't get with the program. So on the show today, what's really going on with network automation? Why is it so hard and what's the state of the art? PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who automates every part of his life right down to his morning choice of API-enabled briefs. Joining us is Ryan Booth to talk about network automation today. Ryan, would you introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience? My name is Ryan Booth. I've been in the networking industry for... 12 plus years or so. I attained my CCIE probably two years ago. Senior network engineer with the focus of data center networking right now for a larger financial institution. My Twitter handle is at that one guy underscore 15. All right. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. And you and I have been talking on the back channel about network automation. We've done some uh, tech field day stuff together and have uh, talked about this stuff for a while. So let's start out helping folks that are maybe not networkers understand what the current challenges and limitations are for network automation. And maybe it's good just to start at the beginning with a level set. How is network equipment managed today? Yeah, and, and that's that's one of the bigger things. Network equipment today is pretty much managed how network equipment was managed 15 plus years ago. CLI, you build out a config script. And when I say script, you build it out in Excel, copy, paste it in and move forward with your change or building up of anything. So very, very simple, straightforward, not much advanced right there. So why is that? Why are you still managing things 30 years ago? I mean, that the virtualization world doesn't do that. Well, I guess in some ways we do, but for the most part, we're trying to move away from that. And we're certainly not using older stuff from decades ago. Yeah. To me, honestly, I think the, the blame can be equally shared across the network realm. You got vendors who honestly aren't giving us many other options besides the CLI. It's always just been the CLI. That's how you touch the equipment. That's how you work with it. But then I also think that that's how network engineers were taught. That's how we grew up. That's how we learned how to manage our infrastructure. And that's how we do it. So we're not really begging and pushing until now for better. So it's just kind of been stuck there. Yeah, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right, Ryan? What other sorts of training have we had? Any, I mean, you you did the CCIE track. I did the CCIE track as well. And there's a certain methodology of uh, of training. It's always been about, here's the thing you're trying to go and, and the, the way you go about making that configuration happen is a foregone conclusion. It's the CLI one device at a time. Your CCIE is more recent than mine. Has there been any training that's really aimed you at something other than the CLI for how to get it done? 
No. And for as valuable as the information you get out of the CCIE is, that's one of the negatives. You're, you're just cranking out config as fast as you possibly can. And all of the tracks out there and, and pretty much anything out there that's teaching you still in the educational realm is just cranking out config and the CLI. It's not really changing much. For me, it's even one of those, you know, I'm very pro. Let's improve how we're managing and how we're working with our infrastructure. Let's automate how we're talking to stuff. But then when rubber hits the road, I still get nervous when it's like, okay, how are we doing config management or how are we going to go this route? It's like, whoa, that's pretty uncomfortable. And it's a stretch even for me. And I guess the flip side of that is not just the configuration side, but then if you will, putting information into the network. But then what about gathering information about the networks? I mean, I don't think that's changed a whole lot either. The sad state of it is it's still SNMP. There are other tools out there. But SNMP is what you're doing it with. You walk into organizations and you're lucky if their monitoring tools are up to par anyways. But then when they're talking network infrastructure, you're getting SNMP and NetFlow. And that's really it. Those There's... don't sound like challenges necessarily. Like those are challenges moving forward the state of the art. But it, I guess what I'm saying is you're not being challenged as a network engineer to perform faster or better or anything. Is, is that the problem, I guess? I'm kind of turning on its head because it sounds like you have to use the CLI and you have all these archaic old tools. But if they've been working for three decades, what's the catalyst that's making this no longer good enough? Everybody's moving faster and everybody is demanding more quicker from the infrastructure, especially as we're moving into containerization or virtualization really pushed on us. Because we, we sit there and, you know, if I have to add a VLAN for everything that you're spinning up, and then I tell you it's going to take me a month to get that simple VLAN added because of change control and this, that, and the other, I can see the frustration from every team I talk to that I have to do that with. We're, we're getting caught up with the tools we have. It takes us so long to work through stuff. Got it. So you're not able to meet the needs that everyone else is kind of aiming towards. And probably tired of being the meme joke, like, blame the network. It's always a network engineer. Like, that's no fun either. Right, right. And, and, and there always is that mentality that the network infrastructure, when you touch it, you're not just touching an isolated piece of the infrastructure. You're not just touching this one specific app. Say, like, a server guy jumps in, does his work on an app. That's all he's working on is that app. If we break this for you, there is most likely a chance that part of our data center goes dark. And that's a lot of applications that we put at risk. And I think that's one of the reasons that holds us back so much and is that is that catalyst to move forward with this. So, Ryan, what, what would your take be on um, the impact of what I would call snowflake networking on, on automation? And, and, and what I mean by that is everybody's network seems to be a little different from everybody else's, which from a vendor perspective certainly seems to be making it hard to – well, it's not on the vendor to automate, but but you know what I'm saying? Everybody's network's different. Does that seem to impact automation from your point of view? Yes. Yeah. If it's actually there or not, it's one of those debates that I, I go back and forth on all the time. I really want to be the type of person that pushes and, and just kills out any type of snowflake networking. But then I circle back around to that and be like, I, I, I don't see it happening. There's too much that the network has to do and too many different applications that it has to accommodate for. It makes it very difficult. But yeah, it's one of those, it's like, no, we can't automate because that one piece of automation would be able to touch only a handful of devices and that's it, where we need to be able to have automation that can touch our whole infrastructure. It makes that difficult. It makes it really difficult. So 
is that a reality? Are most networks snowflake? And if so, is that because they're all artisanal handmade chairs, you know, done by hand, CLI and things? Yes. And I think when most anything is built out and engineered, it's not built out and engineered with the understanding that it's a snowflake network. It's done to be like, we want to encompass everything. We want to do it cleanly. We want to build this out the best we can so we don't have to touch it as much. And then as new requirements come in, as strategy shifts, as the wind changes in the server side and they want to go completely something different, we have to adjust the infrastructure. Or say the WAN guys are like, hey, we're completely shifting our policies and how we're introducing customers into the data center. We're doing it this way now. You have to adjust to those. As the network guys, we do not have the leverage to say no. And that's a fact. <laughs> it's a horrible reality, but it's a fact. I was thinking about it because you know I only finished at the CCNP level, but the the three-tier architecture was just drilled into my brain and everything needed to look <laughs> this particular way. And I'm thinking, okay, everything kind of looks like that or maybe the old topologies, but one of the two. But I guess it makes sense that, you know, like any living system, the moment you instantiate it, it no longer is what it was intended to be. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's funny you say, I think everything kind of looks like this, you know, the three-tier architecture. There are a lot of networks that look, I think the keywords are kind of like that, where you can make some assumption that there's similarities, and then you begin to dig into specific configurations and specific ways traffic flows, and then things that pop up on your network because you've got this specific remote access solution that this vendor sold you that's kind of magical and unique to them, and the way you support that is different from someone else's remote access VPN solution that you you might have bought. You invested in this kind of a load balancer, which is different from these other ones. And because of the way this vendor works with this load balancer, you have to architect the network this particular way to get traffic into them because that's their you know recommended design and the one that they want to support and so on. And so you end up with, I mean, Ryan, t- tell me if I'm wrong here, but I mean, you know, my experience has been networks that all look roughly similar, but then as you get into those details, they vary more widely the closer you look. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. Well, okay. So one other question I I wanted to ask you, Ryan, is how do you react to the notion that network engineering is more about configuring something that someone else engineered? The idea that that if we were really engineers, then the, the scripting and possibly the coding that is required for automation wouldn't be such a big deal, you know, an adoption barrier to try to you know get some of our processes automated. Yeah, it's one of those areas that I I agree with that. I think if we could dig deeper into, say, like the BGP stack or the EIGRP stack or something like that within our gear, we would have better control. My whole career, I've always had to manage Linux servers. I've always had to do monitoring type stuff within our infrastructure, things like that. So I've always worked with that type of stuff. I've also, when I started digging into automation, I was, I was working on building up my own standalone tool, web front end, the whole nine yards. And when you're doing that type of stuff and you're duct taping all these pieces of code together, these small applications on a server, you get very familiar and very intimate with how they interact and how they work with each other. So then when you try to step into that and add your own piece to that, you you better know where to add it and how to automate it into the system or, you know, interact the pieces. For us networking guys, we know we want to turn on BGP. So we pull up a command guide. We don't understand how BGP is working on, say, an Arista switch or, you know, Cisco or Juniper or whoever. 
We just know that there's BGP. You turn the service on if you need it, and here's the six commands you enable to turn it on and work with it. That's all you're given. There's not much else to talk about. And so what can you do? And that's kind of where I see it. That's the barrier there, and I agree with that. You know, my takeaway is just, wow, mine kind of blown a little bit. I'm so spoiled, I guess, that I can't imagine not having programmatic control over just everything. You know, I've kind of kind of become used to the API being the standard interface to my life from a technology perspective. So that's kind of crazy to me to think of having to like log into things as, as things and configure them. Well, the reason behind that is is what popped into my head and, and that's the blast radius of a bad network change so ryan made the point that if something goes bad in the network the impact can can be to a whole lot of different applications and therefore when you make changes in your process how you deal with the network when you make changes or just making changes to the network period no matter how you do it it's always a lot of caution exercise just because of the fear that if it doesn't go well you could have a, a severe impact across the business. And so therefore everything's kind of like, well, we know this works, so we don't want to change it because we know this works kind of a, a mentality that I think is part of why automation in networking has been held back. Data Nuts listeners, Ethan here. I'm sure you're aware that DDoS attacks are a normal part of life. You've probably been hit by one or you're going to be at some point in the future. And our sponsor, Encapsula, can protect you from those DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service, while also offering bot protection and website security, load balancing, a content distribution network. And it is all one easy to use service. And, and if you're missing what the point of this is, the big idea is to put Encapsula in front of your website so that your website is protected. Uh, your website will continue to deliver content even when bad things are happening. The thing here is that Encapsula is seeing all of your traffic anyway, so they're going to block that bad stuff, which is maybe the most important thing. But since they're seeing it all, they're going to accelerate that good stuff too. The bad stuff goes away. The good stuff gets even better. And if you think DDoS protection is no big deal, I personally think it's a really big deal. It's not hard these days for someone to build or even rent someone's command and control network and then unleash terror on your website, keeping your web down, offline. Encapsula protects you from this sort of an attack because they have their own massive network, three terabit per second network with 30 data centers housing their packet scrubbers. And I love this little detail. They codename their packet scrubbers Behemoth. Behemoth scrubbers can handle 500 million packets per second, and all of that put together means that putting Encapsula in front of your website means that you can withstand a DDoS attack. So to add Encapsula's capabilities to your website, visit Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. One more time, that's Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers. And use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. All right, so you've already maybe vomited a little in my mouth about the inability to programmatically control the world of networking. Since we are talking about network automation and that sort of jazz, what sort of tools are you using? Are there APIs involved? Like, How do we really put my codified hands around the network? For the longest time, most network engineers are the ones out there trying to simplify their job. Python's been there. Python's been there a lot. And I think here recently, one of the biggest things to help us out in the networking world was Ansible. Ansible gives us a programmatic way to do what we want with a device. And it's picking up a ton of steam and it's picking up a ton of support in the community. Along with that, 
a tool, Napalm, that allows you to push config, pull config, do various things with it, has been getting very popular. And it grows and grows, and it keeps getting better. I had originally looked at it well over a year ago, year plus, and I thought I understood it. And then I, I was recommended to circle back on it just within the past month or so. And it's like, wow, it's picking up a ton of steam. So a couple of things there just to, to qualify. So Ansible allows you to enforce a specific state, if you will. I want the network to look like this, and Ansible is a tool that can push that. And I know it, I know one of the reasons it picked up popularity was there's no agent required. It will talk SSH and drive command lines if necessary to your devices. You don't have to have an agent that then uh, converts that manifest into a configuration. It'll It just kind of handles that for you, no agent required. That's a really good point there. I think that's why we latched on to Ansible so much in the network industry is because we don't have the option of sticking clients on boxes. We don't have the option to put a daemon on a server or on our on our switch to be able to do whatever we want. We have to work with the box as is, and Ansible is very appealing. Just to qualify that, there are a few switches where you could actually put an agent, but it's far from ubiquitous. You know, Most people don't have that option. A few platforms do, but not enough that you would say, yeah, you know, most people can do that, so we can use whatever tool we want and install an agent. Right. Yeah, I agree. And then Napalm, you were talking about conf- – it's not just conf- – is it or, or is it just configuration push-pull or is you were actually manipulating configuration? Because like, Rancid was there as like a the tool you use to go and get everyone's configuration and save a copy of it. And is it more than that? So from what I've looked into it, and I'm not a Napalm expert by any means, the best I know is you use that to push config out or pull config from a device. But where it's really starting to pick up steam is the logic in doing that, is you can diff config, you can have intelligence built in to say, if this is on the config, do this, or if then that type things, not just let's, we're just going to blindly TFTP this config onto a switch and reboot it and give it the thumbs up. (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Famous last word. (laughs) What other kind of tools have we got, Ryan? (laughs) <laughs> exactly. So what about the fact that not much has moved for a while? Is that because the vendor community doesn't necessarily want automation because it relieves or at least reduces the pain of a vendor lock-in? I just always assumed, you know, routing, switching, the, the whole seven-tier model, it kind of makes the vendor specifics not matter too much. There's certain protocols and, and proprietary things within networking, but I thought you always kind of had the opportunity to pick and choose what you want. I found out through experience that's not always so. The vendor lock-in is real. But if I have a lot of network automation in place, then maybe there's less? I don't know. What do you think? It's moving that way. I really think it is. You're, you're seeing white box switching pick up. You're seeing various things that are, that are hinting that that is happening. I think a lot of it is the networking industry has just been so stagnant for however long. There hasn't been anything really new or you know changing to us. Like, the server guys, you, you had virtualization that really shifted the game. And now we're talking containerization and everything there. And then cloud computing, all of that stuff is shifting that game. Networking, it's really not changing. We're just really arguing over what's the best protocol and swapping them in and out. But the underlying technology is the same. And we're just catching up and hitting that barrier where we're getting the pressure that we need to. We have to move smarter. We have to move faster. It's funny you put it that way because for all of the 
drafts and RFCs that are coming out of the IETF and all the open source projects that are out there, at the end of the day, it's still Ethernet at the edge and IP for transport across the middle. Still. Mm -hmm. BGP seems to be the routing protocol holding most of this stuff together. We keep bolting things onto the side of BGP. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. The only one that I see out there that is really making um, headway in this area is segment routing and the NFV type stuff. They're building in the logic into the controllers. They're building them into the software to stand up tunnels across their infrastructure and being able to do it dynamically. Those are the real areas that I see that really shifting. But you're right. The rest of the stuff is just what protocol is going over TCP IP. Okay. So if routing is routing, switching, switchings, et cetera, do you think vendors are starting to react to this normalization or maybe homogenization would be a better term of their products? Because if we abstract them away with automation layers, all of a sudden it's kind of like, does it matter what vendor's product is sitting underneath there? Do they seem to be reacting to that that you can tell? I think they've been sweating it. I think they've been trying to figure out how to handle that and how they're going to keep their business working. They have solid business, but the two that I see that are big indicators for me is the rumors going around that Cisco's announcing their open source software for white box switching. They're going to have a dedicated iOS, supposedly, that you can just pull for free or however and dump it on any white box switch out there. Yeah, that is a rumor that was a pretty interesting one that popped up. And then uh, I forget what media outlet ran that rumor. And then uh, when you go to Cisco for comment, they, uh, well, that's not exactly what we meant. We meant, you know, however they however they qualified it. And they had this correction at the bottom of the article. And we're all going, hmm, I think we know what's about to happen here. And to me, I'm, I'm all for it. You know, they see that white box switching and the commoditization of that type of stuff is becoming a market. Jump in it. Offer your services and let's go from there. If you have a great service, we'll use it. The other one that really sticks out for me is Arista shifting their EOS into a container because they are now pulling their operating system away from the hardware itself. And now you can containerize the operating system and put it wherever you want. That's the next big shift. And Arista was never that way. They always wanted to couple their hardware with their OS. And that, that seems like a shift in, okay, we need to adjust to this change. Those are the two big ones for me. So how do you talk to a network infrastructure to perform programmatic control? Is it RESTful APIs? Is it something that's going to make me cringe? You know, wh Where does it lay in the spectrum? You're going to walk into 95% of the infrastructure in the world right now, and it's going to be CLI. The biggest that's and best option you're going to have is to SSH into the box and pull what you want or push what you want. So like string scraping? You know, actual... Yep. Yep, that's that's horrible. Yep, that, that's that's. And the <laughs> the sad thing how, is, how do you how do you like your job? That sounds horrible. Like everything has to be managed by you know regular expressions and actual string compares and things like that. That is so yep. old school. It, it, and it, it it is where it is. We're moving slowly, and I, I think that's one of the bigger reasons that automation and this type of stuff really hasn't picked up is because that's what we have. And nothing makes sense outside of, you know, building a couple scripts here or there that are completely honed into exactly what you want to do. It's very dependent upon the exact config that you're pulling because you have to you have to kind of know what the config looks like before you can alter it, which is. Yep. Yep. Wow. I have, I have so much respect for you right now. <laughs> there, there have <laughs> been, especially over the past couple years, there's been a lot of 
improvements in that area. There's been tools come out that really help you do that easier and better and get your information back in a structured way. It's still painful, just like you say. It's pulling teeth. Until it's done, like you said, it's it's just not it's not going to be fortuitous to even bother. I mean, the ecosystem is going to be rough because who can build a product interface with these if there's no you know kind of common configuration layer. I'm just kind of thinking out loud that yeah, that's kind of the base layer. If there's no foundation, you can't build the house, and so that's Mm -hmm. the first thing that has to be fixed. Yep. And so you got the APIs that everybody's touting; they're coming. Arista's doing an awesome job with getting that type of stuff out there. Multiple vendors are. Juniper's usually done a pretty good job from what I understand with that. Cisco, they're making their strides. They're showing that they're serious about it. It's just going to take time. Even when you're talking newer gear and newer code, it changes from version to version once you can actually pull out of the API. I'm one of the lucky ones where I get to work on some of the newer, higher-end devices, Cisco Nexus 9000s things like that, where you get the XR code that gives you APIs. But then the problem is, is like, well, we're stuck on this version for this reason here. And the API can pull this, 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 and this, but we can't interact with this, this, or that. So what are Are you saying they couple the API endpoints specifically with the release that you're running? They're not versioned separately? From the best I understand, yes. Wow. I could be wrong on that. There's still, just in its infancy, getting there, there's still a lot, of, a lot of headway that needs to be made. Yeah, and I'm assuming if everyone even had RESTful APIs today, the kind of talent pool of folks that are used to CLIs, that's not something they're just going to pick up tomorrow. So there's also the human side of the retooling to learn how to interface and code around APIs. So Exactly. And I, I think you come down to what's going to cover the most effectively. So... You're looking at an infrastructure where maybe 25% of it has an API or has some advanced way to be able to pull information out of it. You still have 75% of the infrastructure that you got to deal with. So you might as well go to the lowest common denominator and do it across the board. Well, I think some of that's changing, though. As you said, Ryan, I mean, the APIs are coming along. And I was at uh, IETF 98, Internet Engineering Task Force meeting number 98, which was held in Chicago as of this recording a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Yang models, uh, all the rage in the IETF and also the Open Config project. And there were some people from the Open Config project that are actually presenting at the IETF about various Yang models. Yang being a network modeling language that describes various network features, everything from interfaces to routing protocols and network applications like L3 VPN, all can be represented as Yang, which maybe starts to give us a uh, different version of that lowest common denominator if you have devices that could support Yang and uh, could be interfaced in that way. Are you seeing thus far Yang impact tools and automation interfaces and networking? No, not really myself. I want to. It's honestly one of those that, you know, I I dig into exactly what Yang is and how to work with it or, or what it's doing and what its benefits are. And then I turn around and look to see where I can actually apply it. And I have nothing I can really sink my teeth into. And then I forget about it until someone else brings it up again and I got to re-Google it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I, I recorded a show with Benoit Clays from Cisco about this and he's making the point that it's such early days that where the IETF is at is actually compiling Yang models from vendors and trying to make sure that all the different modules work together. And so we're very far from a predictable set of Yang models to describe 
networking and then vendors going, okay, here's our predictable set. Let's comply with this. And the closest we seem to have is what OpenConfig is pushing out because they, as a group of uh, operators, have such a buying power because they're big organizations like Google that they can say, hey, vendor, you need to support this model because this is the one we want to write to. And they'll go, oh, okay, sure, you're powerful. Therefore, we will comply with your wishes. But it's just, it's we're so far from that across the board. Open config, I'm very excited about it. I think it's a smart idea. I really want to see that pick up steam. But you're right. We're still so far off from even being able to consider leveraging this. I hesitate to bring this up, but it sounds like the state of the art is still focusing on how do we talk to devices. There's got to be some orchestration at the network layer, and I'm assuming some integration at the more data center layer of orchestration, things like you know, OpenStack, Kubernetes, that you're working with today, or is that not existent? It's, it's just what you're hoping for in the future. No, I, they're really, I don't hear anybody talking about there's these awesome new tools out there that's doing all this for us or being able to do this better. Honestly, the one I hear everybody talking about still is, is Ansible and just building it up yourself. I can't really speak too much to like OpenStack or anything because, you know, after I finished my IE, I was gung-ho to dig into it. And once I looked into it, I tucked my tail and started crying and ran as fast <laughs> as I could to something a lot easier. We never hear that story. Anyways. <laughs> you know, Kubernetes and the whole Docker space is getting interesting too. I think there's stuff there still just kind of kicking out. There's the whole announcement with the Conteve and the partnership with Docker to be able to integrate in with ACI from Cisco. There's stuff coming around there, but there's really nothing there. So then, I mean, I've written a lot of code against VMware's NSX as an example, which is kind of like wearing a fancy gentleman's hat on top of uh, the non-automatable network. I mean, could that potentially be the solution you put a software layer that kind of the, the overlay is the control and the underlay you're still plumbing but you leave it kind of static i am a very big fan of dumbing down the network infrastructure make it dumb pipes and remove the logic from the hardware and shift that into the servers let's move it into the servers let's move it into the applications i don't think that's going to solve everything because that's just taking the problem from one camp and moving it to another but I think it's going to help us get there better. I did find it was kind of nice because you did simplify it. For my kind of dumb, I'm a VMware person perspective, you know, you only need a handful of VLANs at the underlay. And it was just kind of like there as the highway. And you didn't really touch it. And then all the other intelligence that I would bake into what the customer needed was in the automation that I wrote at the NSX layer. And I'm not trying to shine a, a wholly magnificent light on NSX. Just that was what I was working with. And they did have an API, albeit it required using XML, which is also garbage. It was a way to very quickly and automatically provision and manage networking, which I, I kind of liked. It was a new thing for me, and I, I just kind of thought everything was like that. I didn't realize that everything else was CLI and, and misery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh. Kind of playing devil's advocate to you there, Ethan. <laughs> just... uh, okay, so the question about you know underlay versus overlay and Ryan, I've been kind of coming around on this view. My idealistic world is networking becomes so easy to automate that, no, you don't do an overlay. Overlays are wasteful, and we're going to automate the network underlay and have the same functionality, and all the hardware will will handle that for us. But I think the reality is is really what we've been documenting here on this show. We're so far from that, and it's so it's so difficult to actually get the 
hardware orchestrated that if you, as you put it, Ryan, leave it as dumb pipes and then do all the fancy stuff at the edges and the overlay and, and then, you know, leverage that via overlays, that kind of makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, it's just really, really the way it is. And I just don't think that that's going to go away. I really wanted it to go away and really fought the overlay as a necessity, but I just, that, that is where we're at and that's what people are using and works. And again, if you look ahead, like you said, um, you mentioned Docker and Contiv and uh, you know Kubernetes, that whole space getting interesting. Yeah, ephemeral infrastructure, things getting stood up and torn down automatically. And then you got to have networking working in tandem with that. So you said it's getting interesting. Do you actually see that kind of a world, you know, that, that ephemeral infrastructure world driving automation requirements for you? I wish. I'm still not even, and maybe it's just my limited view or where I sit, but I'm I'm still not seeing containerization and that type of stuff even pick up steam. It's being used, it's being played with, but that's about it that I know of. I see more talk about it, and I see more networking guys sinking their teeth into how it works, how to operate it, and really digging into Linux networking. But that's about as far as it goes. I want to see more. I want to see it grow. I have to manage three switches at my house, and I'm like, oh, this sucks. I have to go to each one and tell it to do I should really automate all this. I never took the time. I didn't realize that I'm doing it like the professional way. It just, ugh. I can't imagine doing this at scale where I have like 100 switches or something. <laughs> I don't have to imagine it. I've lived it. Yep. Yeah, that's not the job I want. The insecure CRT or whatever the other tools are, the, the chat window where you can drop multiple commands to multiple devices at the same time. That's like your best friend when you're doing is that network automation. That is that's, network automation. That's that's network automation. Network automation. Yep. Oh. <laughs> Copy it yeah. out of Notepad and dump it in the. What chat I just read, Avon Pepelniak's like, if you paste commands, they won't go through. Sometimes post. Yes. And I was thinking, like, how is that a big deal? Who's doing that? Oh no, no, no! One of the key, one of the key things you learn as a entry level network guy is that if you copy the whole config of a device and dump it into a switch, you'll overload the memory and you'll blow out the control plane, and so you'll have to reboot the switch just to be able to get back into it. So you can only even, at worst off, you can go only like 10, 15, 20 lines at a time and drop it into a switch. A lot of the newer stuff doesn't have that, but you remember that, Ethan, right? Oh, I, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was in exactly that habit because you make that mistake once, recover, and then go, oh, well, I guess I'll only paste in a little at a time. But just like reading text causes a switch to fail? Yeah. It, Interpreting alters- text and configuring itself? A lot of older switches, and wow. this is a lot of the limitations, is the hardware is the hardware, the buffer size, memory size, things like that is small, very small. Yeah. So when you're talking, working with the control plane of a switch, you dump it 50 lines at once, it overloads it. It can't fill that memory space and just pukes out. Wow. <laughs> I was thinking, when I was programming the virtual edge switches and routers for NSX, I was giving it giant JSON payloads, and it was like, 200, okay, I don't care. And that was all through XML at the time. But yeah, I just can't even imagine copy-paste into a terminal window. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't imagine anything better because there's nothing better to imagine for the most part. <laughs> well, 
one of the things I have enjoyed about being a Data Knots co-host is that I get exposed to what the rest of the IT stack has been doing, whereas I've been focused mostly on networking and security. I get to hear about servers and uh, compute and and so on. And a lot of that has been tied around new tooling and emerging open source projects and way cool things that different companies are doing to solve their agility problems or flexibility problems. And it feels like networking stuck in the dark ages by comparison which is sort of depressing to me. I mean, I understand why, but you know, as we were talking with Ryan and hearing the state of the tooling and hearing exactly what it takes to get network automation done because of what we're using at this point, it's like, oh man, is this the 1500s? What is happening? Why, why are things so stuck? So I, I don't know. What stuck out in your mind, Chris? Maybe you're leaving the dark ages and entering the new Renaissance era. And uh, my, my takeaway would be, it sounds like this is a clutch opportunity to start learning how do I write scripts and how do I interface specifically with RESTful APIs because I don't really know where the state of the, the switching world is. It's, it's, it's in so many different places and each piece is at a different point in its life. But the end result is going to be there's going to be RESTful APIs. That's going to be the vehicle for control. So if you start skating to where the puck is going, if you're a hockey fan, that's probably a good bet to learn that today. So you'll be an expert years down the road. As we pause the Datanauts infrastructure rocket for just a moment, let's talk about the conference the Packet Pushers are going to be at in May 2017, Interop ITX, and they are a sponsor of today's show. Interop ITX is where tech pros go to get objective, full-stack IT education, and it takes place May 15th through 19th at the MGM in Las Vegas. You can join me, Ethan Banks, along with Greg Farrow and Drew Conry-Murray of the Packet Pushers, where we will be putting on the Future of Networking Summit, and that is a two-day session where we're going to take a deep dive into next-generation developments in the WAN, data center networking, network operations, software-defined security, all the things that we think are emerging over the next one, five, and ten years. Register for Interop ITX and attend other hands-on workshops like the Future of Data, Container Crash Course, Dark Readings Cybersecurity Summit, and the Open Source IT Summit. The events conference tracks focus on security, DevOps, cloud, infrastructure, data and analytics, all the technologies you need for a successful full-stack IT strategy. If you're looking to accelerate your career, there's also plenty of sessions on leadership and professional development. Plus, check out over 100 vendors at Interop ITX's business hall, where you'll have the opportunity to check out what leading and emerging tech vendors have to offer. Join us at Interop ITX this coming May and use promo code PACKETPUSHERS when you register, and you'll receive a 20% discount. We want to see you in Vegas, so go on up to interopitx.com and reserve your spot today. Well, Ryan, I want to move the ball ahead here, even though it seems like we've got as much ahead that we can move into because everything is so nascent and so experimental almost and making the best of a bad situation kind of because we're we're stuck with the command line as an interface for, for far too much of networking. Still, as you compare network automation with automation of other parts of the IT stack, there are some you know, similarities. For example, you know, lots of people talk about managing their code and they use GitHub for version control and so on. Does that kind of thing factor into network automation? I think that's a really good start. I think that's usually, it's a popular, this is what we want to start doing. We want to pull our, all of our config into a central spot and work with it from there. Or audit it is usually one of the first ones we think about. Audit it and change it if you know we move on to that step. 
I totally agree. And I'm a, I'm a big proponent for pulling your code back, converting it into whatever structured data makes sense to you. And then, yeah, version control. Because to me, it's, it is a single config file, so it should be treated just like a file on a server or just a config file, just like you would in Linux. And I think it should be managed the same way. For us network guys that, you know, we do this process manually, we've had tools for a while that do that for us, but that type of mentality and thought is still pretty foreign to a lot of us. Now, would you draw a line between configuration management and code management? I would. Yeah. Okay. How would you draw it? They should be handled separately because there should be some interaction there because that's the other downside too, is configuration changes at small levels from code version to code version. So you might be managing your code across your infrastructure and you upgrade all your devices. Then the configuration has to change and you have to adjust your configuration side as well. It usually does automatically when you update, but you still have to account for that as well. But yes, it's definitely still a massive undertaking to manage your actual code of your devices. That needs to be a separate, separate role. You know, I read a post recently by Randy Bush, and he argued that treating infrastructure as code – he wasn't – he does have a very strong you know, presence in the world of networking, the IETF, and so on. But he was making the argument that treating infrastructure as code is is insane because of blast radius, and he made a few other arguments about how that's a, a bad idea, even though it wasn't necessarily just focused on networking, his argument. But but do you think treating infrastructure as code is, is, a, is a crazy idea? Does that – impact configuration deployment you know, in an automated world to you? The, the blast radius part is the one that I key in there because we have a much larger blast radius than I want to argue, you know, most of, most of IT, kind of like what I mentioned earlier, you blow up one switch or a, a push to multiple switches, you send half the data center dark. We have to be very careful with that. But there is still stuff in place to be able to validate and test and verify that, that we just have to be much more diligent at doing that. Can you dig into that? Because I agree a little bit. The infrastructure's code thing can go different ways. There's the 100 deploys a day kind of world that the people are trying to ship code constantly. And that's obviously not applicable to infrastructure. You're not going to push firmware and patches and software things that frequently. But certainly to take a step back and kind of encapsulate your code or your infrastructure as code for a number of other reasons, like you, you mentioned, validation before deployment makes sense. So, so how could you actually validate before you deploy in a network world? And here's one of the hardest cruxes, because there's multiple things that will just blow this all to hell. So first, you have to deal with hardware and how individual hardware is going to react to what you're doing. And not all the time can you have that specific hardware in your lab. Say you're working a larger infrastructure and you have higher end switches, they cost four, five, six hundred thousand dollars each, whatever. Are you going to be able to replicate, you know, six of those in a lab with full traffic going through them? No. You know, a lot of organizations are just lucky to buy two of them for production. So how do you replicate the hardware stuff? It's difficult. The other part of that is you got to understand the traffic flows and what the current state is going through your infrastructure. And we already have a really hard time understanding that because we don't have the true visibility into it. So you have to do manual tasks like jump into your devices before you do pushes. And you have to verify that the ARP tables are showing what they should. The logs are showing what they should. The route tables are showing the route right routes, things like that. 
And then after you make your change, you either have your app guys verify that their apps work, and then the best you can do is really jump back in and make make sure the ARP tables are the same, the route tables are the same, things like that. So it makes it very difficult. I do think those are key areas, though, kind of like I mentioned. That type of stuff can be built into test systems that can be de- built into validation, testing pre and post. It's doable. You just got to know what your apps are doing and what you're supposed to see. And I think that comes where we got to break down more silos and we got to work closer with the server guys and the app guys. Yeah, that whole unit testing thing is a, is a tough one. I've seen a few different models of how it might be done. I saw a presentation by Juniper last summer sometime where they were uh, demonstrating doing network unit testing with Jenkins, I think was their the, the backend platform. Make this change. You've got a model of the network. Have Jenkins run it against and prove that you know these however many things didn't break essentially, and uh, you know and then go ahead from there. But it was again the whole problem of snowflake architecture you know, rears its head there because what breaks in your environment doesn't break for other people and vice versa. Exactly. If they're finding a challenge in kind of stopping at unit testing. Then how are you ever going to get to functional testing? Because you know unit testing is supposed to be the easy. You know, the easy part, the checkbox item that, that requires more logical and you know, internal testing. And then functional testing, it sounds like, is a pipe dream because you'd have to completely replicate the entire, the entire physical environment. And, and I, I think that's one of the absolute largest barriers, and I don't know how we'd get across that. Dev guys and you server guys, y'all have figured that out. Y'all have abstracted your piece of it from the hardware. Y'all have gotten away from that altogether. So for you to go and actually do that type of testing, you just spin up another virtual environment somewhere else, make sure it's set up the way you need it, and you run through your yeah. stuff. And you've actually automated that. We can't do we're that. lazy in a cool way. Right? <laughs> wink, wink. We, we, we still have line cards we have to deal with. We still have ASICs. We have all sorts of hardware that we are still coupled to that we have to figure out how to do that. And that's going to be a big one. It's going to be hard. So given all this, and I, I realize I've been a little salty because some of this is, is news to me. I've not been a network engineer for any reasonable amount of time in my life. How far away are we from like this standardized approach to network automation to where it's just, it's what you learn and there's industry training and it's just very widely accepted? Mm. I think it's going to become a norm within the next 10 years, maybe five to where that is an option if you're in those areas. You said 10 years, maybe five, which is an eternity in IT. (laughs) Well, so it it also kind of depends on what part of the networking industry you're going into. Data centers move in blazing fast. And for us as data network turtles, you know, it's it's moving fast. But it's still going to be a while for people to start refreshing their gear and getting into some of this stuff. We got the vendors coming up. We got the stuff coming. It's here. We just got to get people on it and working with it. Enterprise side of the house and everything over there, it's a lot slower pace when you're talking 10, 12 year life cycle on some of this gear. You know, I, I know 35 that are still in production and those were end of life 10 years ago plus. <laughs> I, remember, I remember being commissioned as like a, a, a grease monkey essentially to go into various wiring closets and rip out old switch stacks. And I'm looking at this and I'm, like, I've never even heard of this before, and I Google it, and it's like, this came out 14 years ago. I'm like, wow, this thing's still getting used by, you know, hundreds of people. But that's the refresh cycle, and the network engineers that were waiting for the new piece of gear, they were so excited because they're going to see one or two of these refreshes in their life, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's exactly right. 
I think if you kind of look at how the data centers moved over the past eight plus years now in the networking realm, we've moved at, you know, every several years, we're, we're making a bigger step forward and we're shifting to a newer technology that's improving this. So I, I definitely can see in, you know, possibly five, eight years, maybe for the networking side where we're really starting to seriously talk this stuff. Well, Ryan, let's let's close out the show this way. I, there's some resources that you've got listed here that uh, for folks that are interested in this, they want to learn more, they can take advantage of. What are some of those? My go-to and the one I love spending as much time as I possibly can with is the Slack channel for Network to Code. Anybody who's out there that's familiar with Jason Edelman and what he's been working with with his company and stuff with Network to Code, they have an amazing Slack channel that covers all sorts of technologies, all the vendors, a ton of the tools that are out there, and they have a huge community list in there with, with some really smart people. There's over 2,000 people in that Slack channel. I'm, I'm in that too. I, I don't, I'm not very active at all, but, uh, but I do monitor about uh, six or eight channels that are interesting to me. Yeah, Slack's one of those for me as I look away for five minutes and come back and I'm like 10 conversations behind and it's like, crap. So it's hard for me to stay on top of that one, but it's an awesome resource. So you can Google Network to Code or go to networktocode.herokuapp.com to get signed up for that and get into that Slack channel. Yeah, it is a, it is a great – Slack's the new IRC, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a great tool. A lot of what I see out there too is start working with your vendors, start talking to them. Cisco's got DevNet. Arista has their various conferences – or not conferences, but their um, training sessions, various things like that. Talking to vendors, working with them, getting training sessions seems to be a way to go to get honed in on their products too. And then, uh, Ryan, I know you're, you're social, you have a blog and stuff. Would you share that information for folks? Yeah. So when I have the time, which is not very often, I really try to push. I blog at blog.movingonesandzeros.net. And usually I, I, I stick with a network focus. I'm data center focused as well as where I sit. I'm trying to branch out more and more, start playing with server stuff. I have a series going right now that's been going on for way too long that's basically taken current trends in the data center, what people are talking about, what's what's kind of becoming popular, throwing it all in the middle of a sandbox and setting it up and just kind of working my way through that and how to automate it and things like that. So it's it's been interesting. It's a challenge too. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. And on Twitter, you're that one guy underscore 15 on Twitter and pretty much anywhere else, right? That's, yeah, that's where you can find me, that one guy 15. Very good. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at EC Banks on Twitter. And my blog is EthanCBanks.com. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter or via his blog, WallNetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is PacketPushers.net. You will find the Data Knots talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full-stack engineering, storage architecture, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your scripts execute flawlessly, and your cables be cleanly managed. Depressing conversation. <laughs> yeah, no idea. You guys, job sucks so much. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.